This week on the show, we cover our second round of ZFS improvements hitting FreeBSD. We have a post about Postgres finding that non-FreeBSD and non-Ilumos systems are corrupting data. We have an interview with Kevin Bowling of Limelight Networks. There is the BSD CAN schedule list available, and we have cryptographic right answers in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 241, Bowling in the Limelight, recorded on April 11, 2018. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Glad you tuned in, as always. And uh, we from last year, no, from last year, from last <laughs> week's episode, we have something left from the headlines because we promised to continue our ZFS improvements uh, hitting head. And this is what we're going to do now in our headlines. So, Alan, take it away. Yes. Uh, so, a couple more really juicy commits into ZFS, into FreeBSD head. I think most of these will land, uh, have landed in time that they'll be as part of FreeBSD 11.2 as well. So, you can look forward to that. Uh, so, one of the first tasks during the, uh, one of the, the first one we want to talk about is the improved ZFS pool import and load process specifically for corrupted pool recovery. Hmm. So uh, one of the first tasks during the pool load when you're trying to import uh, a pool of disks uh, is to parse a config provided from userland that describes what devices uh, the pool is composed of. Uh, so this comes from either the, the zpool.cache file or just from looking at all the disks on the system and looking at their labels. So a vdev tree is generated from that config and then all of that data is sent to the kernel, and the kernel opens those VDEVs. Uh, on those VDEVs, there is the meta object set, or MOS, of the pool, and it that's accessed, and several metadata objects that are necessary to load the pool are read. Uh, the exact configuration of the pool is also stored inside that MOS on the disks. Since the configuration provided from userland is external, it might not accurately describe the VDEV tree of the pool at the transaction group uh, that is actually being loaded when you're importing the pool, uh, it cannot be relied upon to safely operate the pool. For that reason, the configuration in the MOS is read early on. Uh, in that case, the two configurations were compared together, and if there was a mismatch, then the process was aborted and an error was returned, and mm. you couldn't import the pool. So this would obviously cause some confusion. <laughs> Uh, you know, it'd be really annoying. It's like, okay, what this says and what the pool says don't match, so let's stop. Uh, and you were left not able to import the pool. Yeah, what do you trust, the user uh, specification or the uh, the moss on the on the pool? Well, it turns out the moss. Uh, but oh. anyway, so that uh, is a good way to ensure that a pool does not get corrupted. However, it made the pool uh, load process needlessly fragile in cases where the VDEV configuration changed or the user uh, user lane configuration was outdated. Since the MOS is stored in three copies uh, on the pool, uh, the configuration provided by user lane doesn't have to be perfect in order to read its contents. Hence, uh, a new approach has been adopted. The pool is first opened with this untrusted user lane configuration 
just so that the real configuration can actually be read from the MOS. Then the trusted MOS configuration is then used to generate a new VDEV tree and the pool is actually closed and reopened using that configuration. Mm -hmm. And you can already see the redundancy here that ZFS keeps track also of that data in three redundant copies. Yeah. So it has three copies, uh, physical copies. And then if you're using RAID Z, there's redundancy of all three of those copies. So what's not to like about ZFS? This is alone. This alone is just amazing. Yeah. Uh, so when the pool is open with the untrusted configuration, writes are disabled to avoid accidentally damaging the pool. During reads, some sanity checks are performed on block pointers to see if each DVA, uh, which is the basically the address of the data within the pool, uh, so DVAs are per VDEV. Um, it's basically the data virtual address. Uh, so in a RAID Z, it'll actually be the offset in the entirety of the RAID Z, which composes all the disks. Um, anyway. Uh, so it checks that the, um, the DVA is sane for that VDEV when the configuration is untrusted. Instead of panicking the system if these checks fail, we simply avoid issuing reads to those invalid addresses. Mm -hmm. This new two-step load process now allows rewinding pools across VDEV tree changes, such as uh, replacing a device or adding a new device. So previously, if you tried to do one of those uh, extreme rewinds where you would go back to an older version of the pool, possibly throwing away you know, the last 30 seconds of writes or something before the pool crashed, um, if that was around the time when you had replaced a disk or tried to add a new disk or whatever, it would stop because of this change. Now you're actually able to rewind and get the pool back. Uh, loading a pool from the uh, from an external config file is uh, uh, in a clustering environment also became much safer now since the pool will import even if the config file is out of date and didn't, for instance, register some recent device additions. So if you think <laughs> if you had two heads both accessing the same shelf full of disks, it the one that was the backup, its copy of the config is not going to include those new disks you added last month if it's never <laughs> imported the pool since then. And so it would refuse to import it, and now it'll actually read the disks on the pool and be like, oh, look, some new friends. <laughs> Anyway, uh, with this code in place, it became relatively easy to implement the long sought after feature, the ability to import a pool with a mis missing top level or non-redundant device. So if you have a pool with, uh, and for example, you accidentally add two new disks as non-redundant VDEVs instead of as a mirror, because you forgot the mirror keyword when you did the command, uh, and you didn't do dash n when you did the zpool add to make sure it was right before you did it always do that or mixed up zpool add and zpool attach um again dash n and it'll print out what zpool status will look like and you make sure it's right before you commit it it's a dry run yeah yes but sometimes people have done this um and worse they've made the mistake of then removing that device and trying to live without it and then the pool won't import because there's a device missing. Now with this code, uh, you can import the pool read-only with a missing device. Uh. So it's there's still going to be data missing. But if it's a disk you just added, it's maybe only files touched in the last 30 seconds, so you don't care. Uh, 
being able to import the pool read-only and getting the rest of your data back is a big win over not being able to import the pool. Oh, yeah. Give me parts of my pool at least, yeah. Yeah, and okay. then there's a bunch of related work that went with this so that uh, you can actually rewind to a specific transaction group and a bunch of other stuff, and uh, you have a lot more flexibility in recovering uh, a pool that wouldn't import now. Uh, including, in fact, I helped a user on IRC use this uh, to import a pool that had dedupe and had all these problems they were having and it wasn't able to import. It would hit an assertion and stop. Uh, they were able to rewind... Uh, a few more transaction groups with this new code and get the pool imported read-only so they could ZFS send all their data to a good pool. Mm -hmm. Which also let them get rid of dedupe, which made them very happy. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's not for everybody. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's just next. the first of the features we're covering this week. Yeah. Uh, then we have <laughs> device evacuation. AKA, everybody have to get out of here. Everybody out. <laughs> it sounds less scary than it is uh, yes. so uh, this project allows a top level VDEV to be removed from a storage pool with the zpool remove command so this actually allows you to take disks out of a pool although there are yeah. some caveats so you'll want to pay attention here mm -hmm. uh, so this uh, allows you to reduce the total amount of storage in a pool this operation copies all allocated regions of the device that you're removing uh, onto other devices that are staying in the pool. Uh, re it records these mappings from the old to the new location, and then after the removal is complete, uh, read and free operations to the removed uh, VDEV, which is now called an indirect VDEV, uh, must be remapped and performed at a new location on the disk. The indirect mapping table is kept in memory uh, whenever the pool is loaded, so there is a minimal performance overhead when doing operations on the indirect VDEV. So when you remove a single disk from a zpool, um, what it does is basically makes a virtual VDEV that replaces it, and that virtual VDEV is just a list of ranges saying all the blocks that were in this range on the old disk are actually on this other disk over here. and it's just a big list of those ranges and where they got moved to. Um, and you keep that in memory. And every time you try to access the disk that's gone now, you just go through the one level of indirection and get redirected to where the, the blocks are now. So kind of like a symbolic link. <laughs> yeah, until the every uh, link has been mapped to memory and the, the disk can be safely removed. Right, and then, but that, that table stays around forever as part of the pool now. Mm. Um, the size of the in-memory uh, mapping table will be reduced when it becomes obsolete uh, because they are no longer used by any block pointers in the pool. So as you you know, replace that data and it gets written normally to the remaining VDEVs, Copy uh, the on mapping right. table will keep shrinking. Um, yeah. If you never overwrite the data or delete the data, then the table won't shrink. But this way, you don't have to haul this table around forever. If you eventually rewrite all the data, uh, it'll clean it it'll shrink. Uh, an entry becomes obsolete when all the blocks that uh, use it have been freed. Uh, any entry can also become obsolete when all of the snapshots that reference it uh, are then deleted and the block pointers that reference it have been remapped to the new file system or zvols or clones or whatever. Uh, when an indirect block is written, all of the block pointers in it uh, will be remapped 
to the new concrete location. So if you remember ZFS is this tree of blocks, if you're changing one of the blocks up here that points to one of the blocks that was on the removed disk, mm-hmm. since we're changing that block anyway, when we're copying and writing the metadata, we update it to actually point to the real location so you don't have to go through that indirection. Okay, uh, that's faster. So that, yeah, yeah uh, you keep working on getting rid of this remapping as much as you can. Okay. All right, Very this nice. process can be accelerated by using the ZFS remap command to proactively rewrite all indirect blocks that reference any uh, removed devices. Ooh, I didn't know that part of the feature existed. <laughs> uh, note that when a device is removed, we do not verify the checksum of the data that is copied. This makes the process much faster, but if it were used on uh, redundant VDEVs, like a, a mirror or RAID Z, uh, it would be possible to copy the wrong data. Now, hmm. for the because it only works currently on an individual disk, um, there's nothing we could do with if there's a checksum error anyway. Unless you had copies equals two, but that's kind of a special case. Um, and so, since we don't change the checksum that was in the metadata already, it means that the, the error will be caught by the scrub the next scrub you do on even in its new location. Um, uh, so currently, you can't actually remove a mirror or a RAID Z device. Uh, only a single, like a stripe, an, uh, a disk with no redundancy. Um, if you do want to remove a mirror, you can cheat. If you do the zpool detach command, it will pull one of the disks out of the pool and the Remaining disk that was basically one half of a mirror will be degraded down or demoted down to being a stripe so that you can remove it. Uh, you probably want to do a scrub first to make sure that both sides of the mirrors are correct before you do it so that you don't accidentally corrupt something. Yeah, and since the data is leveled over all the disks, let, let's for example say you added a two terabyte disk to a mirror of one terabyte and you want to remove that one and there's already data being synchronized to it then there's less data well, if it's to, all parts uh, well, of a mirror then you can yeah, then you, you could can, always yeah. remove it you could always detach yeah. uh the extra copies of mirror you just couldn't drop it to not you couldn't remove the last disc in any mirror set mm. yeah okay and now you can all right. um this is mostly um uh, the company that developed this delphix used it because their pools are in VMs and are not backed by real disks, but by LUNs on a SAN. And uh. at some point they realized they don't need as much space as they're taking from the SAN and they would like to be able to give some of it back. Uh, but that, that's you nice. can <laughs> remove disks from a pool, but I've yet to meet the person who needs less storage. Yeah, it's only growing. And then okay, the last one is uh, kind of interesting. So this is zpool create should support EFI system partitions. Um, mm-hmm. So this one uh, was not actually merged into FreeBSD um, because it doesn't make sense in the way FreeBSD does things today. Uh, but we copied all the code so that our we wouldn't diverge and it wouldn't cause merge conflicts in the future. Um, I personally would like to change the way that ZFS deals with the whole disk option in ZFS. 
uh, to be more like what a Lumos does. So if you give the entire disk to ZFS on a Lumos, it actually writes a little GPD partition table that just says this whole disk is ZFS uh, and deals and puts the boot code in this, the right place in ZFS. How we do it on FreeBSD right now is if you do that, we just write ZFS raw to the beginning of the disk. Um, I assume this was just a, a misunderstanding of the definition of what whole disk meant uh, when Pavel was porting it. Uh, or it was just easier to do it that way back then. It was a long time ago now. Uh, but if we switch to doing it the Illumos way, uh, this does a couple of different things for us. One, uh, if we switch to putting the boot code in the pool, in the, the slot in the label that it's meant to be, uh, we can have, say, a zpool boot code command to update the boot code on all the drives in the pool instead of having to do it manually with the gpart command for each disk. Um, but more importantly, it works for the fault management stuff. So we have a daemon in FreeBSD called ZFSD that can automatically replace disks for you. So if you have a chassis and you have a bunch of disks in it and one of them fails and you pull that disk out and put an empty one in, um, ZFSD can actually add it to the pool you know, and, and start the zpool replace process for you. Except if you're using partitions because you boot off that disk, then it gets much more complicated because ZFSD doesn't know how to partition the disk and so on. So if hmm. we had it set up so that if you give ZFS an entire disk, it actually sets it up with a partition table that's bootable. Now you could have all this work where you don't have to run any ZFS commands when a hard drive fails. You just go to the front of the chassis, pull out the dead disk, put in the new one, and ZFSD, if you've turned it on, will take care of everything for you. So yeah. the problem was, uh, when this was built for Lumos, it didn't support EFI. Suddenly with EFI, you need to have this uh, ESP partition around um, to hold the bootloaders. And you can't just hide it in a... You can't put a little bit of assembly at the beginning of the disk and hide it in this little convenient hole we left. Um, so... What Thomas Soom added here is, since we support whole disk configuration for boot pools, we also need whole disk support for UEFI boot, and for this, uh, he created the zpool create command uh, should now create an EFI system partition. So he borrowed the idea from Oracle Solaris and introduced a new flag. So when you do zpool create, if you specify dash capital B, it will, when it partitions the drive, instead of making just one big ZFS partition, it will reserve a small uh, EFI partition as well. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, however, there's still the question of how big should that partition be? For the time being, he set the default to 256 megabytes because it's the maximum size you can make a FAT32 if you use 4K sector blocks. Or 4K clusters in, in ZFS speak. Um, but he also added support for a custom size. Uh, so it, there's a new boot pool property called boot size. Uh, and so you do zpool create dash capital B dash O boot size equals, you know, 34 M for megabytes. Uh, and then, you know, your pool and what disks or whatever. And after the pool is created, the boot size property becomes read only. 
Uh, mm-hmm. And if you don't use the dash B switch, then the boot pool size defaults to zero and shows up as like dash, just empty. Um, mm-hmm. And it's ignored by, uh, you know, other ZFS implementations that don't use it. Okay. Yeah, it's good so, to have uh, uh, in case uh, yeah, there will be if, changes. If we get to doing that and supporting EFI, then we could have pools you boot from that could be automatically replace failed disks uh, just by without having to type any commands. So that is something I would like to make happen. Huh? You know, would be good. Not that have. I don't have enough on my plate already, but <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so we've been talking the whole time about pools, but the biggest pool, of course, is an ocean, and that brings us into our first uh, sponsor this week, Digital Ocean, of course. Which See, that was the best uh, introduction that I ever had. Um, so <laughs> uh, Digital Ocean provides you with droplets, which are little computers called virtual machines in the biggest of networks, the Internet, and in their cloud. You can deploy within seconds your uh, infrastructure, either a naked operating system or one-click apps, be those MongoDB or MySQL or even a full-blown uh, blogging application. So all that is available on your commands in case you are trying out DigitalOcean. And uh, if you want to try it out, definitely use our coupon code. FreeBSD now, which you can, uh, if you provide that, you get a ten dollar credit. Yeah, uh, they have with their new pricing. You can get uh, any of the standard droplets starting at as low as five dollars a month, uh, which now gives you a gig of RAM, which is twice as much as before, um, or you know all the various sizes up from there. They also have uh, optimized droplets, uh, giving you more CPU time. You know, if you're going to run Jenkins or building ports or something, you might want something with more CPU horsepower. Uh, so they have those. Or the flexible droplets uh, with their most popular $15 price. You can choose between 1 gig of RAM and 3 CPUs, 2 gig of RAM and 2 CPUs, or 3 gigs of RAM and 1 CPU. All those come with a a very spacious 60 gigs of uh, disk space, all backed by SSDs, and 3 terabytes of internet transfer. That's a lot. That's very much, yeah. And you can get a nice uh, web-based control panel, so you can log into our uh, into your little uh, droplet in case you have some networking issues, so you can get to the console, or you can remotely control it via API calls, via Ruby, Curl, uh, Go, or their own DigitalOcean uh, DOCTL. Yes, uh, DOCTL, nice little static Go app. Uh, it's what I use when I need to do stuff. It's, uh, you know, the web interface is super handy, has all kinds of, you know, magic and syntactic sugar and so on. Uh, but, you know, when I needed to delete 40 droplets, so much faster to use the, the command line tool that uses their API. Uh, it's great. But yeah, uh, yeah, they have great community section and they have uh, very good tutorials. Uh, they have Q&A. Uh, they even have uh, some meetups if you're interested in talking to other DigitalOcean people. Uh between their droplets, their new spaces, and their block storage, a uh, great solution for storing files, whether you need to store objects or blocks. <laughs> um, and, you know, you can start with either and uh, scale them to exactly the size you need, which is great because 
you know, you, you're always going to need more storage and you want to be able to add it later, not pay for it from the beginning. Mm. Yeah, so try out DigitalOcean and uh, definitely use our coupon code FreeBSD now. Okay, next up in our headlines, we have some news from the Postgres folks. So uh, this is over at Postgres Hackers, and uh, it starts off with a little scary message uh, telling us that Postgres developers find that every operating system other than FreeBSD and Elomos might corrupt your data. And uh, yeah, that certainly gets people's attention. Um, it starts off with uh, the post from uh, Craig Ringer. Craig Ringer, yep. Yep. He writes, um, some time ago, I ran into an issue where a user encountered data corruption after a storage error. PostgreSQL played a part in that corruption by allowing checkpoint uh, that should have been a fatal error. So too long didn't read. PG or Postgres should panic on F-Sync uh, EIO, which is error in IO, I guess. The, the error code, yeah. And retrying F-Sync is not okay, at least on Linux. When F-Sync returns success, it means all writes since the last F-Sync have hit the disk. But we assume it means all writes since the last successful F-Sync have hit the disk. Yeah, so, so what happens difference. here is you write some data, but asynchronously. So you don't make the write call wait for the, write, the data to be on disk before it returns. You just say, write it and I'm going to keep going and do my work, and you know, uh, you don't need to tell me when it's done. Uh, but after doing a bunch of that, um, Postgres will run the fsync call, which should say any data that's uh, sitting around in RAM waiting to go to the disk, I want to now stop and wait until that's all safely on the disk, and then it creates a checkpoint and it goes on from there. Um, so. When you call fsync, it's supposed to wait and then return once the data is safe. However, if there's some problem writing to the disk, like uh, the disk has stopped working or whatever, uh, fsync will return an error. And different operating systems have different concepts of what should happen in that case. Mm. So on Linux, you do an fsync, you get an error, uh, but it's thrown away the data that it wasn't able to write. And it resets the error state, and then you write some more data and call fsync, and it says, okay, I synced that data. Uh, but Postgres assumed that meant all data that it was, had been pending was synced, not just... So uh, Postgres assumed the data that didn't finish writing last time and the new data had both synced. <laughs> uh, but all Linux did was sync the new data. It had already got rid of the other data. Uh, the bigger problem for Postgres is Postgres wrote that data and it doesn't have it anymore. It it gave it to the operating system. Yeah, here, uh, do the finishing writes. Yeah, so it's on like, the here, disk. go write this. And then go write this and go write this. And it's like, okay, are you done writing all that? And I said, uh, there was a problem writing some of that. And you're like, oh. Well, Linux assumes that Postgres is going to give it another copy of that data to write. But Postgres but is like, I gave you the only copy. What do you want me to You're responsible now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You uh, dropped it on the floor. Yeah. So, yeah. so and this, this is specific wasn't with... a problem uh, for EXT file systems because yeah. once there's an error, they switch to being read-only and any future attempts to write are going to return, hey, this file system's read-only. Uh, but on XFS on Linux, it doesn't do that and they ran into this problem. Yeah. So, this... Now that I've provided the context, you can keep reading. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so um, the message continues that PG wrote some blocks which went to operating system dirty buffers for write-back as normal. Uh, the write-back failed due to an underlying storage error, and the block IO layer and XFS, which this refers to, uh, marked the write-back page as failed uh, as error in IO, but had no way to tell the application about the failure. As Alan said, when PG called fsync on the uh, file, file descriptor, descriptor during the... Yep, during the next checkpoint, fsync returned EIO because of the flagged page to tell Postgres that a previous async write failed. Postgres treated the checkpoint as failed and didn't advance the redo start position in the control file, which has the uh, information in case the database crashes, you can restore from there, but it's not in there anyway. Uh, so all good so far. But then we retried the checkpoint, which retried the fsync. The retry succeeded because the prior fsync cleared the ASIO bad page flag so that it's not there anymore. The write never made it to disk, but we completed the checkpoint and merrily carried on our way. Oops, data loss. Uh, yeah, that's bad. The clear error and continue behavior of FSync is not documented as far as I can tell, nor is FSync returning error on IO unless you have a very new Linux man page with the patch I wrote to add it. But uh, from what I can see in the POSIX standard, we are not given any guarantees about what happens on fsync failure at all. So we're probably wrong to assume that retrying fsync is safe. We already panic on fsync failure for a write ahead log segments. We just need to do the same for data forks or at least error in IO. This isn't as bad as it seems because, as far as I can say, fsync only returns error in I.O. cases where we should be stopping the world anyway, and many file systems will do that for us. Upon further looking, it turns out this is not just Linux's brain damage. Apparently, I was too optimistic. Well, uh, uh, no, now we're switching to a different uh, ah, this is a different topic. Okay. Well, uh, same topic, but uh, a different email. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a whole email thread with a lot of people replying. Yes, so and this this next scared. step is from uh, Thomas Monroe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, that reads. Apparently, I was too optimistic. I had looked only at FreeBSD, which keeps the page around and dirties it so we can retry. But the other BSDs apparently don't. FreeBSD changes that in 1999, and there's the Git commit provided. Yeah. So here uh, it's uh, the commit says, uh, don't throw away the buffer contents on a fatal write error. Just mark the buffer as still being dirty, so that next time we try to flush, it will try again. Uh, I mean, this isn't a perfect solution, but throwing away the buffer contents uh, will uh, will offer results in file system corruption, and this solution will at least uh, correctly deal with any transient errors. So if the error that stopped this from being written, uh, if retrying is going to work uh then this solution at least gives us a chance whereas throwing the page away means that we can never get that that data back uh so leaving it marked dirty and retrying at least gives us a chance uh so this was submitted by kirk mccusick and committed in january of 1999 see almost 20 years ago so uh and we now see the the results from that the positive ones and be a freebsd at least so from what i can tell uh, continues uh, from the sources below we have linux openbsd netbsd retrying fsync after eio lies freebsd and ilomos retrying fsync after eio tells the truth and there's netbsd pr listed to solve the issues so that right so uh, 
the email goes on a little bit. Uh, maybe my drive-by assessment of these kernel routines is wrong and someone will correct me, but I'm starting to think uh, you might be better to assume the worst on all systems. Uh, so yeah, they have links to the NetBSD, OpenBSD, FreeBSD, Illumos uh, repos, and specifically the bit of code to the specific line number where it deals with this case. Uh-huh. Uh, and yes, so this, as you mentioned, has sparked a NetBSD PR. Yeah, it's a long discussion. I mean, it, the one discussion is on the Postgres side, and the other discussion is on the operating system side. So that needs to be figured out because the Postgres folks pretty much rely on the data, uh, not on yeah, the database as well, but the operating system and the file system is specifically to do the right thing because they trust to take the data from the database and put it on the disk. Yeah. So uh, the NetBSD PR. 23152 says pursuant to the recent discussions about broken f-sync behavior in linux over at postgres um a netbsd developer says here i've found four problems so far number one i io errors are not reported back to f-sync at all uh so you could f-sync and it won't return an error even if there was an error which is probably even worse uh two write errors during the uh Gen- generic file system put pages function that fail for any reason other than uh, enomem cause the data to be semi-silently discarded. So it throws the data away and doesn't necessarily raise an error, which is even worse than raising an error once and then claiming everything's fine afterwards. Uh, three, it appears that UVM pages are marked clean when they're selected to be written out, not after they're actually written. Uh, so there's a bunch of potential race cases there, uh, race conditions where if the write fails, but we've already marked that that page is having been written out safely. And four, it appears that write errors uh, for buffer cache buffers are also semi-silently discarded as well. Hmm. So then they break down uh, more info about each of those four uh, problems. Okay, so yeah, definitely that needs to be investigated further. So we're joined this week by Kevin Bowling. He's a senior manager of engineering at Limelight Networks. First of all, welcome to our show. Uh, Glad to have you here. Thanks. Nice to uh, be on the show. Yeah, we tried to arrange this for a while, but now finally we got it uh, working. So the question that we always ask uh, newcomers on the show who haven't been here before, how did you get first introduced to Unix and BSD? Uh, boy, Unix is a long story. So I think um, in the late 90s, when I was fairly young, my brother built a computer uh, for the family. Somehow he knew a lot about technology back then. And we wanted to run Windows NT and Windows 98 because there was lots of software that didn't run on NT at the time, like games. So we went to uh, Fry's Electronics to go buy like a partition, like a shrink wrap partition management software. And it was like $80 to buy Partition Magic or whatever it was which was a great deal of money at that time. Or you could get a shrink wrap Linux distro for like $49 that included the partition manager. So we bought um, 
this Caldera open Linux, like 2.0 or 2.2, something like that, and ended up triple booting the system. Um, and I had absolutely no idea what Unix or Linux were, but I would boot this up into like KDE2 at the time and go play around with it. Um, and it was like kind of Wizard of Oz, like bizarre, like all the, you know, I would go use like the file manager and see like the dev directory and it would blow my mind. Like, why is there a file for the CD-ROM drive or whatever? It didn't make much sense at the time. Um, but it kind of planted the seed in my mind. So I, I came back um, and in the two th early 2000s started to learn Linux, I think, um, primarily Slackware at the time. And then I installed uh, Monowall on a old computer to create a firewall. So that was my first formal BSD experience, even though it was, you know, well insulated behind uh, web UI and all that good stuff. Um, and I didn't come back around to actually using a BSD until probably 2005 era, 2006 maybe, and NetBSD was my first um, BSD. And I got involved in that uh, to port it to an obsolete computer architecture. Um, didn't really do any of the coding, but I found all of the documentation to do that, hardware documentation, and um, learned how to use their build.sh and hack out a kernel and netboot and all that kind of stuff. Um, then most of my professional career was Linux up until uh, coming to Limelight, so I can, can hold off on that to, uh, to later questions about FreeBSD. Uh, so what got you started actually contributing to open source? That's a, a long story as well. I think um, I'm trying to remember what my first project would have been. It would have either been random PHP goo or um, Ultima online emulators. I was involved in like UOX and RunUO, uh, which were um, basically reverse engineered server software for this online game uh, back around the early 2000s. So um, those were all developed in open source and it was just kind of enlightening to see like, you know, the, how the community would reverse engineer a protocol and then go develop server software and game mechanics and things like that. So I caught the open source bug really early before, um, you know, before it was a, a definite commercial win even it was just appealing to me it felt like the right way to do software mm -hmm. so and what things have you worked on in the past I, I i've been involved in and out of open source projects for a long time um the bigger lifts i've done uh when i was in college i did a bunch of work on lib event which is used by tons of software um to port it to different operating systems, and I redid the Auto Tool, Tools build system for it uh, to kind of uh, limit some of the header pollution they had grown over the years. Um, I did a Minecraft server uh, around that time as well, 
um, from scratch. That was a lot of fun because I learned how to kind of like run an open source project. I had uh, myself and then like two or three heavy contributors to the project. Um, after that time in professional life, I've done a lot of um, just whatever needs to be done at a company. I'm pretty technology agnostic. Um, you know, I've done Java, Scala, uh, C, um, Python, whatever, you know, all, stuff in open source and closed source and all of those uh, different ecosystems. Okay. Cool. Uh, so I guess the reason we had you here is uh, tell us a little bit about how Limelight, uh, what it is and how they use FreeBSD. Yep. Yeah, that's definitely uh, interesting. Um, you know, we're certainly one of the more interesting users of FreeBSD, so I'm, I'm happy to share our story. Uh, so Limelight um, is one of the larger CDNs. Uh, I don't know exactly how we rank in terms of volume and or throughput in this day and age, but Historically, it was like, you know, two, three, four uh, behind Akamai and some of the other players. And um, what I got, going back to the, the dawn of history, what I got from one of the founding engineers was they were all a bunch of, you know, network engineers from the 90s. And in that day and age, people liked to run Solaris uh, on Sparks. That was kind of how the internet was run. And... When Limelight was started in the early 2000s, they inherited that model, but they found uh, even on the Spark hardware, they were hitting uh, issues in TCP, and I don't think Solaris had a stable uh, event polling mechanism, uh, dev pull at the time, for the caching software when they started. Um, so they managed to find uh, FreeBSD ran well on these Sparks, and then they could go buy these super microservers to supplement the capacity at a, at a much cheaper uh, price point. So that was, FreeBSD is actually part of Limelight's history from the inception. The um, kind of, you know, the past decade or so, uh, a lot of things happened. We moved up through the, the different major versions of FreeBSD and for a while, we had a proprietary TCP stack that we bought uh, from a company that was then acquired by one of our competitors, uh, which, as you can imagine, is a pretty awkward situation. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> the past few years have been trying to unwind that and get back onto a uh, TCP stack where we have the source code and the expertise and agency to move it forward. And um, we've completed that and it's been uh, a very very uh, successful project for us mm -hmm. yeah you already touched a little bit on it so uh, but what are the, the biggest advantages of uh, freebsd for limelight i think from from my perspective it's that we have this talent and i, I focus on the people first i mean you you have this a large enough pool of talent to hire from and to come to with bugs and questions and concerns, and um, that helps you kind of align vendors to get drivers done and things like that. Um, and then, of course, the technology is there too. It runs well on the common hardware that you're going to find in a data center. Um, we basically don't have hardware issues on, on FreeBSD. Uh, I've been helping with, uh, along with Netflix and some other folks to get 
some of the drivers that we depend on more reliable, especially in networking and storage. Mm-hmm. And um, I found that FreeBSD really has a good, what I call a driver culture. Um, the, you know, when you have other operating systems like Windows or even Linux, um, you're generally dependent on the vendors to do a good job on the drivers, which means that it's probably going to work out of the box, but if it works well and is high performance is more uh, hit or miss, depending on, you know, how good a job the vendor did. Whereas FreeBSD seems to have a lot of, of kind of governance over the drivers. Uh, you have people like Scott Long, you know, looking at all the storage uh, SaaS and NVMe stuff. And then um, people like Matt Macy and Drew Gallatin and, and others watching over the networking uh, drivers. Yeah, it seems uh, compared to some other operating systems where a driver is a, a third-party module that just comes in or is just something that gets integrated as a unit, in FreeBSD, vendor code even can get code review and be like, you should integrate more like this in it, and, and or here's a better model of what the driver state should look like, and just even just documentation around how things like CAM work so that uh, storage drivers can be built better. Yeah, the storage subsystem is definitely the strong point in FreeBSD, I think. Uh, it's just very well architected, and there's a lot of talent that you know knows how it works and can help uh, other people understand that as well. So that's a definite advantage of FreeBSD. Um, but it really, I mean, fundamentally, it has all the building blocks we need. It has a solid file system where UFS users for number of reasons that I can go into if that's interesting. Um, it's got the networking stack that, you know, is pretty legendary and we can hack on and improve. And um, then the, the user land and, and everything else is comfortable enough that, you know, if you're familiar with, with Unix, you can you can get along just fine in FreeBSD. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the UFS? Like, is it? More than just yeah, this is, because it was what you started with. That that's certainly part of it, but it's kind of this was shocking to me when I kind of started at Limelight. But you know, it made sense as soon as I, I looked at the 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 ingredients and the problem we were working with. So um, we're running caches around the world, and um, essentially that data is. Um, it's a it's a cache. If we lose it, it it doesn't mean anything bad. You know, we just have to go fetch it from an origin. Um, so, to get the maximum I/O performance and the maximum uh, storage density, we just run a file system per drive. And when a drive fails, we throw it out. And a lot of times, those drives will sit in the computer, uh, you know, for for months or even years in a, in a down state and the box is still usable. Um, so there's a, a, a formula there, you know, to when we go in and replace drives or whatever. But um, effectively, the things like RAID or ZFS would both, uh, you know, take away from the performance and the capacity of our, our cache. Right. And, and in your particular case, you want it to kind of fail in place, die, and get out of the way rather than something like ZFS that's going to try as hard as it can for as long as it can to keep it working. And you'd rather just have it fall off. 
Right, and that's that's a trade-off. I mean, that, it, there are interesting properties to ZFS outside of the pooled storage and uh, the integrated RAID that I would, you know, I would love to eventually kind of see if we could adapt it to this workload, but um, UFS has been so solid and, and performant that it, it's just not a priority. Right, and does Limelight use the send file system call? Yes, and that's that's another great point. So um, ZFS has never integrated uh, send file or MMAP in a in a, a zero copy fashion that I mm-hmm. am aware of. Yep. Um, so a lot of our performance stems from that, and we're also piggybacking on to work Netflix did with the uh, kernel TLS, so we can send encrypted data uh, with send file. Right. So I've looked at it. I think there's a path to getting to send file being zero copy in ZFS, but MMAP is a, a whole different story because with MMAP you can modify it, and if you're trying to share the data from the cache in ZFS, it's read only. Yeah, I've I've spitballed the the general idea or the general problem rather with people that know a lot about the VM and, and ARC and, and whatnot. And um, one school of thought, this is probably controversial, but is just to get rid of the ARC in some capacity. Um, that That's a major surgery to ZFS because of it, it uses that as kind of a working, uh, that memory is kind of a working set for mm-hmm. things. But um, trying to get tighter integration with the existing VM and, and page cache would be interesting. Um, that's probably not the, uh, maybe not the community favorite approach, but it might be less work. Uh, so it, there, there's a lot, a lot of interesting trade-offs there that hopefully somebody eventually will, uh, be incentivized to go figure out. Yeah. Cause the, the other method is, um, there's a original proposal from Solaris. I think it's in the closed source Solaris. I'm not sure. Uh, but they added, vnode operations to request and return zero copy buffers and so basically with a small extension to uio you can borrow pointers directly from the arc and then use them for the socket and down to the mbuff like um like what semfile does with the regular vm buffer cache except for you would just borrow the buffer from the arc and send it through. Uh, right. You, so that you would work for send file, but not for MMAP. You could potentially implement a send file that understands the arc, and that's probably even easier now that uh, the ABD work was merged. You can you know, tune that to page size uh, allocations. But um, I think, there, like you say, there's a lot of, you know, the MMAP problem is completely different than the send file problem. So it's it's definitely an interesting thing. And it's it's actually kind of surprising that nobody, none of the large users have been incentivized to go fix that yet. But I imagine in the next few years, somebody will, uh, you know, will eventually get that figured out. Yeah, I think with the more all flash type uh, storage appliances moving forward in that direction, that uh, suddenly you'll be interested in Nmap that goes in excess of 100 gigabits. Right. I, it, it, with the the memory to memory copies, I mean, you're looking at a half to a quarter the theoretical performance, you know, from uh, from doing that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of of performance sitting there for 
the right uh, user to go to go capture. <laughs> okay, uh, we yeah, got so, a quick uh, question. Uh, oh, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, from the chat room, whether you considered Hammer or Hammer 2 from Dragonfly BSD to be an option rather than UFS? Um, I, I've certainly looked at it on my own time. I, I've never really considered it uh, for, you know, as a, a formal project. Um, one of the issues is Dragonfly has diverged tremendously in the, the kernel primitives, so their locking model and task model are completely different than FreeBSD. Um, it's it, it wouldn't be a light lift. Uh, in fact, it would probably be harder than than ZFS to port Hammer to FreeBSD uh, because ZFS was written kind of platform agnostic from the start. Um, it's certainly worth revisiting that. I think you would probably want to wait for Hammer to stabilize in Dragon Free, uh, Dragonfly first. Before you go down that road, you know, bringing a bringing a half baked file system over to another operating system is just going to add more problems than solutions. So, um, it's it's just not something I would consider commercially viable yet. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so speaking uh, of that, uh, <laughs> what could FreeBSD do better that would benefit Limelight? Uh, the the biggest thing that we've needed has really gotten done in the past few months. Um, if you're watching the commit logs, you've probably seen a, a tremendous amount of activity in the VM from uh, Jeff Roberson and uh, Mark Johnston and Alan Cox and Kib. Um, so we were kind of pegging the page. Uh, basically, the page daemon was single-threaded and our workload would stress that uh, to the point where you, you could, you know, peg that at a hundred percent and the machine would be bottlenecked. Um, Netflix had some out of tree patches to work around that uh, in their, they have a blog post about it where they talked about the fake NUMA and things like that. So we had explored that and that was in our, you know, in my back pocket, if we needed to exploit that right away, that performance right away, but what's happened in the past few months is really a uh, a rototilling of the VM to make it um, per domain and, and even per thread in many cases. Um, and then there's some batching work in progress that will also help our workload. So that basically unlocks uh, the really the theoretical performance of modern server hardware for all types of workloads. Uh, but especially our, our, our data mover workload. Um, outside of that, we're obviously, you know, just anything we can do in the network stack and TCP is relevant. Um, if we can eliminate bugs or work on congestion control or, um, you know, efficiency improvements, whatever the case may be, locking improvements, uh, that that's really where our our, our Money's coming in, so we, we need to keep moving that forward. Okay, so and uh, what has Limelight given back to FreeBSD in return, if anything? Sure. Else? Yeah, so we, we were kind of a, a unknown user, I would say, um, up until about 2014. Uh, and it w I would even say we were kind of, you know, it was kind of accidental that we were on FreeBSD. It wasn't 
you know, it was an early choice and we were just carrying it forward. Um, since that time, we, we came out and started engaging with the community. Um, and I, I need to thank the community for that, you know, pulling myself and my team and, and others, uh, you, you know, our executive team even, uh, in the right direction. The biggest things I can think that Limelight uh, has contributed recently, um, we've been working on the TCP stack for those years, so there's a lot of ancillary patches uh, to congestion control and bug fixes in there. Um, we were the kind of the stewards uh, of IFLib that was done by three companies, so um, Isilon, uh, Netflix, and then Limelight in succession got that across the finish line. And the, the goal with uh, IFLib is to make it easier for vendors to write both a correct and a high-performance network driver. Um, what we, we saw, or, or what basically Matt and, and others that created the, the initiative saw with network drivers where people were basically copying and pasting a well-known driver and then kind of morphing it into their own um, hardware spec and, and then trying to recreate all the performance tweaks that they needed. And um, basically, if you write an IFLib driver, you're going to get a high-performance driver by default. Um, so that's been a major initiative. And then finally, we've been very involved in vendor management. So we have a very good working relationship with Intel. And um, Intel's been really good to us and the FreeBSD community in providing Perfectly. hardware funding for the foundation, funding for contractors. Um, they've provided hardware to contractors. Uh, they have a development team doing the network drivers and, and other things. So we've been growing that relationship and... Um, working with other vendors like uh, AMD, Chelsea, IBM, uh, as we see opportunities. Yeah, great. Uh, so what have you personally been working on more recently? Um, so most of my time for the past two years has been trying to digest the TCP changes that we're running. And uh, we were successful at that. Uh, so I've kind of broadened my view out to um, system performance. And now I'm trying to follow along with all the, the VM work going on and um, try and you know, make sure that that's acceptable for Limelight's workload. Um, personally, I've been working on the power port for FreeBSD, which has been a lot of fun. Um, we have FreeBSD running on Power 8 class hardware, and now we're in... Um, planning phase of getting it up and running on Power 9, which is a, a, a much more significant lift than uh, Power 8 because we want to switch, um, basically fall in line with various things uh, that IBM is doing on, on other platforms. Um, so that, that's been a lot of learning and hitting my toe against every bump. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, what do you find to be the most valuable part of open source? I guess you touched on it a little bit by talking about at the beginning the, the engineering, that focusing on, your, on, the, um, um, on the people in the company. Is that related? Or? 
Yeah, I think, you know, as an engineering manager, the thing I like most about open source is you can kind of go find talent very easily. Like if you see somebody working on a subsystem that you that's critical to your business, you can go hire somebody with, you know, with known uh, output on that code. Um, and, you know, that that's the most direct approach, but you don't even have to do that. Like if you if you can come to the community with a well-formulated problem or, or bug report, um, there's really just access to exceptional talent. Like I, I've been blown away, you know, talking to people in the networking, the transport community and FreeBSD and the storage community, just the depth of their knowledge. Like, um, you know, you, you can come to, to somebody with a problem the symptoms of a problem, you know, that you're, that you don't really understand and they can kind of reason through it and, and help you, you know, even oftentimes find a, a, a fix and get it committed. So, uh, that's a really fun way to develop software. I mean, it's, it's a big responsibility to roll an operating system out in a, uh, you know, whatever operating system you're running in a, in a production environment and, when you have that level of talent to help you uh, succeed, it, it makes your job a lot more fun and, and, and doable. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. and I think, you know, only because FreeBSD is open source would you see things like uh, Isilon, Netflix, and Limelight working together. You know, they're not strategically aligned really in any way, uh, but they're all using the same system and benefit collectively from the work put in by each. Yeah, that that's been really fun, and just the community management aspect of that. Um, you know, the, trying to get the right people talking at the right times, and make sure that we're effectively using our contractor funds and things like that. It's uh, it's it's really a good um, ecosystem to work in. Mm -hmm. Yep, definitely. Uh, so, what do you think? could be improved about the kind of the way we do open source today? Uh, so FreeBSD in particular, I think, has some um, just kind of warts in, in, the, in the contribution model. Like the some of that's derived from like SVN and, and some of it's derived from the committer model. I don't have any any solutions to that stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm fairly new. I've been doing FreeBSD for, you know, what? four years. So, um, I don't, I, I can't offer any solutions, but I think it, it, that pipeline to getting people proposing and then integrating a patch is pretty rough still, even with tools like Fabricator, uh, and, and, and Bugzilla, it's just, it's not as simple as some, you know, newer projects with the Git, GitHub style, you do a drive-by pull request and it gets merged kind of thing. Yeah, that needs more improvement as a whole pipeline or beginning-to-end integration. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I can't claim to know the solution for, for that. I mean, from watching ports, um, ports seems to be much more lower bar to entry. Like, you can, you can do drive-by patches pretty effectively, so I uh, I don't know what the you know what the how we'll get to where we want to be but th there's certainly a lot of improvement to be to be made there. 
Mm. Yeah, yeah. At the same time, you don't necessarily want drive-by commits to the networking stack, but sometimes, uh, especially a vendor, will have part of a feature or something, or enough of it that works for them, but they can't carry it the last couple steps to get it generalized to, to useful to everyone. Um, and, you know, they have a delivery date and a project that they're working on, and they can't spare the time to make this feature useful to people that aren't them. Uh, but being able to carry that that last little bit can be... Yeah, that's a tough, a very tough uh, trade-off. I mean, it, it, when you look at the companies, you know, kind of unwinding the different needs of Limelight versus the other large users, like where we would be perfectly happy, you know, with a hack that works for us, while another company might, you know, that might break their usage of the system. So uh, getting things right in the kernel is, is definitely harder than, than other project, or, you know, than any other code base um, in user land or, or whatever. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't know the answers there. It's something I'll, I'll keep noodling on and trying to figure out. Huh? So uh, we heard a bit about your computing history collection. Uh, what are your <laughs> three favorite pieces that you have? Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, so I've been collecting computers since I was in my teens. Um, so I have hundreds of mostly 90s on up stuff, like every RISC architecture. Uh, I especially like workstations. Um, I have a IBM Z series, like a mainframe Ooh. that I've been working on. Um Getting all the doodads to make that work has been fun. I mean, part of the fun is finding the stuff and, and you know, refurbishing it and all that rather mm -hmm. than just buying, like, a complete kit, to be honest. But um, I had to find the, the storage for that. Uh, they use a special block protocol called FICON, um, and I was lucky enough to find one of those arrays. Um, so I have all the raw ingredients to power that up now. I just moved houses, so I need to uh, put in some twist lock 30-amp uh, connectors so I can power that thing up. But um, <laughs> outside of that, I have um, an Apple network server, which is neat just because it's so unusual. It's a Mac with all the aesthetics of a 90s Mac, the beige color and but it has hot swap drive trays and it runs uh, IBM AIX rather than Mac OS. <laughs> uh, uh, well, back in the day. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a bizarre kind of crossover, but it's a neat neat system. And um, what else do I have? I've got a lot of SGI stuff that's pretty neat, uh, like a graphics card that's like 32U high. <laughs> well, you have to start somewhere. <laughs> wow. So, uh, what keeps you motivated to work on open source stuff? Um, mostly the challenge. I mean, it just learning. Like, I, I never feel like I've reached the peak. You know, I've always found people that are smarter than me and know more than me. And that really motivates me to keep going. Like it's it's pleasant to be around, uh, you know, people that that are as good as they are in these communities. 
yeah, you know, it's like they say, if, if you're the smartest person in the room, go find a different room. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like when I go to a BSD conference, I never feel that way. And that's really enjoyable. Yeah. You know, it's very exciting to even just also just have a group of people that are interested in the same things you are and, and being able to, you know, let that out yeah. more than you can in everyday life. Right. Yeah. You, it, it's a, it's interesting. It's a very international community too. So you get, you know, a, a good mix of perspectives and worldviews and all kinds of other benefits, especially if you go travel, you know, if you go to the, uh, the conferences outside the U S you can get a lot of, um, you know, side benefits aside from the computing. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, uh, what do you do for fun? Collecting computers? Um, yeah. yeah, I spend a lot of time with computers. <laughs> it's both a, a profession and a hobby for sure. Um, outside of that, I, I do, I like to keep myself busy. So I have, um, some trucks I work on. I like mechanical things in general. Uh, that, that actually drives my fascination with computing too. Like computers are just a mechanical thing that don't really have limits that physical things do. Um, but the working on engines and axles and stuff like that's a lot of fun. Um, I try to stay pretty active. So I'm, I'm in Arizona. We've got pretty beautiful uh, landscape out here. So I do a lot of mountain biking and running and stuff like that. Okay. And so was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we let you get back to work? Uh, no, that was uh, interesting. I, I'm glad I got to share the Limelight story. And if anybody's you know curious, they're welcome to reach out to me um, directly. And uh, you know we're always hiring for talent, so uh, don't be afraid to reach out. Okay. Thank you very much. Great. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for coming on the show. Good deal. Bye. So we hope you liked the interview with Kevin Bowling here. Uh, time for the news roundup now. Uh, we have BSD Can 2018 schedule available. So the selected talks are up and uh, the tutorials as well. So uh, we won't cover all of these, but they are great. It's a good lineup of good talks. Uh, look forward to, uh, I guess, most of them. So, yeah, it's it's BSD can uh, at its finest, I guess. Every year it gets better and better. So there's lots of interesting content. Uh, we're looking forward to it, of course. And hopefully see you there. You people watching this show should be there and say hi if you see us. Or if you've been there for the first time, check out the um, the beginner session, the newbie session. It's on yes, Thursday night. Yeah, at Thursday night. Uh, the instructions are up on the website, I think. Uh and basically, uh, a bunch of people who have done many BSD cans before will be there and get basically paired up uh, with people who it's their first time so that they have some people whose names they know and faces they know. They can, uh, you know, ask for help or even just advice, you know, which talk should I or could you introduce me to so-and-so so I can ask them some questions uh, yeah. or whatever it is. You know, we're all yeah. very nice people, but... Uh, it helps to know a couple of people when you first get there. You know, I think my first year, I, I watched lots of talks, but I mm. talked to maybe four people. Um, I, I didn't yeah. really meet many people. Whereas uh, with something like this newbie session, uh, I would have maybe 
got introduced to a few more people. Yeah, so don't be shy at BSD Can. It's uh, it helps you get to talk to people when you have the chance to be there in person. Yep. Uh, but do check out the schedule. Uh, also, don't forget about the tutorials. Uh, you know, especially if you're coming quite a ways to come to Ottawa for BSD Can, you probably get there a couple days early anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. And ch- definitely check out the tutorials. There's a list of them up uh, on the schedule, which we linked in the show notes, or you can just go to bsdcan.org and click schedule. Um, but also, if you are planning to go, uh, do look through the schedule and maybe uh, write into feedback at bsdnow.tv and tell us, you know, which three talks are you most excited about and why? Uh, and maybe we can uh, sucker those particular people into coming and giving <laughs> us uh, some a bit of a tease about what's going to be in their talk or whatever, or, you know, figure out what else is going on and what people are interested in. Uh, I know there's some interest in the keynote. Uh, ben O'Rice will be talking about the tragedy of System D. Uh, <laughs> but there's uh, more than a little bit of good stuff sprinkled all over the schedule. Um, I don't know that there's any time slot where there's fewer than two rooms I would like to be in at once. Yeah, it's uh, it's always the difficulty. Uh, which one to go to? But yeah, yeah there will uh, be recordings. So Looking at that slot, there's two, and it would be three if I hadn't seen one of them in a different conference already. And the next slot, uh, I could actually go to any of the four, all of the four <laughs> if I could manage it. And then uh, the next one, there's you know, at least two. Uh, and then what do we got uh, three, and then... Uh, and three there's again. always uh, but it would be all four <laughs> if I hadn't seen one of those in another country uh, and actually uh-huh. the, that one will be updated enough by then that I'll probably want to see it again and if you think oh, you can get a break during the lunch hours or the tea and coffee breaks uh, nope there's hallway track and there's uh, during lunch hours typically birds of a feather sessions also uh, they're not on the schedule yet but I guess they will add them later on so there's yes. more uh, also if you want to even just informally, uh, help us make up a list of things of, of birds of a feather sessions that people will find most interesting. And maybe we can pass that on to Dan and I hope, uh, you know, I'll harangue somebody into running each of those or something. We can pick what birds of a feather sessions would be most interesting to people. Yeah. And if you miss all the talks, don't miss the opening session and the closing session with the auction. Yes. Yes. The closing session is, is extra special. It's not like, oh, thanks for coming, goodbye, see you next year, but there is auction. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's where most of the fun is had. Yeah. And, you know, we've had lots of fun through the whole conference, so when I oh, say yeah. that, it's... It's the, the tip of the... Mm-hmm. Yeah, tops it all off. <laughs> Especially since there's supposedly being a, a certain tape being auctioned mm-hmm. off from a certain it's recording from uh, VBSDCon I was attending, I'm not sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we'll see how it goes so definitely try to make it to Ottawa in June and uh, hopefully see you there yes another and, um, oh and thank you to all the sponsors of BSD Can for helping make that happen yes uh, including a longtime sponsor IX Systems which is also the sponsor of this second uh, well section in this uh, podcast here IX Systems mm-hmm. 
go to ixsystems.com and uh, check out what they have to offer in terms of uh, custom-built open-source operating system servers. So in case you are wondering, hmm, I'm trying to get a new system and I'm not sure it's running this particular operating system, it's running this particular open-source software stack, I'm not sure do I need more memory or more CPU or more disk space. I have a fairly rough idea, but let's just talk to people who know their stuff in the open-source world and that's a good call you can make to IX Systems because mm-hmm. they can build you a server that's specifically built to that specific purpose you're trying to do. Yeah. Uh, also, check out the IX Systems blog. They have a bunch of information there and they're talking about they're sponsoring the new CodeStock and CodeStock Academy conference uh, and going to that out in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. But also information about their TrueNAS product line and specifically integration with the cloud like Google Compute Engine and Microsoft Azure and uh, Veeam Backup. Oh, yeah. They they keep upgrading the, the TrueNAS system, so just mm-hmm. their storage system based on ZFS, of course, and they make heavy use of that in their storage products. And you can rely on the ZFS features like we talked about, the reliability that's in there. And partner that with the hardware that iX Systems can put together is certainly a good package for your server needs. Yep, and it's where I get all of my servers. Uh, not just because it's great hardware and they help me integrate it and make sure I get the best stuff for FreeBSD uh, and because they give me the best price, but it's because they take all the worry out of it. You know, I, I used to build the hardware myself, figuring, you know, I know what I'm doing, um, and they did, but, you know, they, they have more experience at it than I do. They know which hardware and which firmware works best with uh, FreeBSD and they just take all the hassle out of it. I'm just uh-huh. like, I need uh, this server, and I need it to be in Miami uh, next week. Uh, and they just make it happen. Whereas, you know, even just dealing with the shipping of that uh, myself would be a huge a huge hassle. Uh-huh. Uh, whereas with them, it's just, I tell them to make it happen, and they do. Yeah, or if you're looking for a smaller uh, scale system, check out their FreeNAS Mini and Mini XL for your office or uh, home needs. Maybe backing up software or any kind of data you want to have on a FreeNAS Mini. That's certainly a good uh, backup option because it can also grow with your needs. All right. Um, Next up in our uh, little roundup here is something that we find interesting enough to uh, tell it to you, which is cryptographic right answers. Uh, Yes, so this is a a rather long document, but basically crypto can be confusing. It changes all the times, new algorithms, and they all have confusing names, and some of them look the same. Like, what's the difference between uh, RSA and DSA? Or DSA is bad, but ECDSA is good? What? Uh, and so on. Um, we all know that you shouldn't roll your own crypto, but there's still lots of other already built crypto out there that isn't so good. Um, so uh, some developers have tried to answer these questions over the years and keep an updated answer of the, or an updated list of the right answers. Uh, the original version uh, was from Colin Percival, who was the security officer for FreeBSD back then. Uh, and he made up this list and I think it was on his blog uh, and it was very helpful. But it's not 2009 anymore. So what has changed? So in 2015, uh, another security researcher, uh, Thomas Patek, 
How do you, your touch check? Your B. Yeah. Touch check, maybe? Touch check, something like that. Uh, TQBF on, uh, Twitter, um, made an updated version. And now, uh, Latacora, which is a, uh, company that provides basically security team as a service to startups and is where mm-hmm. Thomas works now has made an updated 2018 version. And for comparison, for each of the questions, uh, they also include why you should care or when you should care, but they also include comparison between Colin's answers from 2009, uh, Thomas's answers from 2015, and their answers for 2018. Okay. Uh, so it says we're less interested in empowering developers and a lot more pessimistic about the prospects of people getting this right. Uh, you know, there is in the literature in and of the most sophisticated modern stuff, better answers for many of these items. If you're building a low footprint embedded system, you could use strobe and a sound modern authenticated encryption stack entirely out of a single SHA-3 like sponge construction. Um, uh, and you could use noise to build a secure transport protocol with its own AKE and so on. Um, but uh, if you're a developer and not a cryptography engineer, you should not do any of that. Uh, you should keep all things simple and conventional and easy to analyze and boring, uh, as the uh, Google TLS people would say. <laughs> so looking at the cryptographic right answers. So if you need to encrypt some data, uh, this isn't, for disk encryption, where the answers are different. Uh, but uh, if we look back, Colin's answer from 2009 was to use AES in counter mode and an HMAC to make sure that the data wasn't modified. Uh, whereas Thomas's answers from 2015 were to use Libsodium's default, whatever that happened to be, uh, or failing that, ChaCha20 Poly1305, and failing that, something like AES GCM. Uh, their answer for 2018 is that you should use uh, Amazon or Google's hardware security module timeshare uh, or KMS if you can, uh, and failing that something like X Salsa 20 plus Poly1305. And then they go in to explain in detail uh, why and how all that works. Okay, the security people. But, yep, and then looking at symmetric uh, key length. Am I, did I skip one? Nope. Uh, no, uh, it's there. Yeah. Colin said in 2009, you should use 256-bit keys. And then Thomas says, yes, you should use 256-bit keys. And the answer for 2018 is to go ahead and use 256-bit keys. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, certainly good predictions yep. or uh, calculations even from Colin yep. Percival. Uh, and then to do a symmetric signature... Uh, Colin's advice was use HMAC. Uh, Thomas's advice in 2015 was, yep, use HMAC. And the 2018 advice is still use HMAC. <laughs> uh, and then for a hashing algorithm, uh, back in 2009, it was a, a kind of new thing to say, but Colin said, you know, yeah, use SHA-256, like SHA-2. Uh, in 2015, it was use SHA-2. And 2018, still use SHA-2. Although, specifically, if you can get away with it, you might want to look at the SHA-512 truncated to 256. So it's the same strength as a SHA-256, but 
on 64-bit platforms, you can generate it about 50% faster because you're using the 64-bit word size instead of uh, 32-bit. Uh, so even if you only need 256-bit, you might consider using the truncated 512 because it'll be faster. And they say, we still think it's less likely that you'll upgrade from SHA-2 to SHA-3 than you'll actually upgrade from SHA-2 to something much faster than SHA-3 in the future. So for now, SHA-2 uh, is the answer. Mm -hmm. And then if you need to come up with a random number, uh, a random ID, um, Colin's advice from 2009 of use a 256-bit random number uh, is still good. Yeah, I'll com confirm that and mm -hmm. still agree. Uh, if you need to hash passwords, uh, in 2009, Colin predictably said use Scrypt, which is the key derivation function that Colin wrote, uh, or failing that, use PBKDF2. Uh, for 2015, the advice was, in this order, use Scrypt or Bcrypt, uh, and if nothing else is available, then PBKDF2. For 2018, it's still use Scrypt. Uh, but they added Argon 2 ahead of Bcrypt on the list. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. And yes, don't build some elaborate hashing agility scheme or whatever. Just use Scrypt. <laughs> uh, but don't just use naked SHA 1 or 2 or 3. You, you definitely want to use, you know, the crypt versions. If you want to do asymmetric signatures, uh, Colin's suggestion was uh, RSA in a specific mode with a SHA-256. And then it goes on very specifically to use bzerp pop exponent. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah, that was very... a joke at first, but no, that's actually a thing. <laughs> uh, and then the 2015 and 2018 advice is just use uh, libsodium uh, in the box or crypto box. Uh, Colin says telling them just to use a certain library is a bit of a cop-out, and I kind of agree with that. Um, but whatever the the default in that library is, I guess, is what they're telling you to use for now. Uh, for asymmetric uh, signatures, uh, they've now upped it and suggesting using uh, ED25519 uh, or the libsodium thing. Wow, this is fairly accurate what Colin uh, already said way back when. Yes. Uh, well, you know, Colin does know what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. Yeah. In the security area, definitely. <laughs> yep. Um, so for Diffie-Hellman, Colin recommended a 2048-bit group 14. Uh, and 2015 was pretty much stick with that. 2018 was you know, why are you still using Diffie-Hellman, I guess? Uh, you can, they have more in that, and you can uh, dig into it and understand a little better uh, if you want to read into that. Um, and then for website security, uh, Colin recommended using OpenSSL. Uh, in 2015, it was OpenSSL or BoringSSL if it fits your needs, uh, or just have Amazon do it for you with using the elastic load balancer or something. I suppose if you're in Amazon, that makes sense. But hmm. uh, And then 2018 is they put the Amazon at the beginning of the list and then 
failing that using OpenSSL, and you should use Let's Encrypt rather than uh, a regular certificate authority. Uh-huh. <clears throat> uh, for client-server application security, uh, they say Colin's advice was distribute the server's public RSA key with the client code and don't use SSL. In 2015, Thomas was used OpenSSL or boring SSL. Uh, and that advice has pretty much stayed the same. And they talk a little bit, you know, it seems crazy to recommend using TLS given the recent history of attacks, which they have a bulleted list of like all of them here. <laughs> uh, you know, we had Logjam, Freak, Poodle, the RC4 fiasco, Crime, Lucky 13, Beast, Heartbleed, the renegotiation bug, triple handshakes, compromise certificate authorities, Drown, etc. But it's still the best thing. And then finally, they have suggestions for online backups. Last but not least. <laughs> Colin recommended using Tarsnap. In 2015, Thomas recommended using Tarsnap. In 2018, uh, they recommended store a pmac-siv encrypted arc file on S3 and save the fingerprints of your backups to an ERC20 compatible blockchain. Uh, just kidding. You should use Tarsnap. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously though, use Tarsnap. Mm. Yeah, so that's a nice uh, roundup for comparing, you know, what Colin Percival already said in 2009 and uh, what people yes, still use and confirm. His, his advice has held up very well, considering it's been now nine years of a lot of things have changed in this space. Yeah. And uh, mostly in the worst case, because more more exploits, more security vulnerabilities. But these recommendations are still valid enough to uh, listen to it. All right. Uh, next up, we have an item about adding IPv6 to an existing server over at Dan Langell's blog, where he posts interesting things that he's doing while he's doing it and uh, posting the results. So he writes in that particular article, I am adding IPv6 addresses to each of my servers. This post assumes the server is up and running FreeBSD 11.1 and you already have an IPv6 address block. This not, does not cover the creation of an IPv6 tunnel such as that provided by he.net. Uh, this assumes native IPv6. So aside here, I'm actually removing IPv6 because I'm using a lot of Hadoop and the first thing that they ask you to do is disable IPv6 because the database doesn't work with IPv6. Uh, but that's just me. Yeah. All right. So terrible. It's it's anyway. crazy. I mean, IPv6 is not a new thing, but yeah. Okay. Well, it's, uh, moving on. <laughs> it's worse that it it can't operate in the presence of IPv6. Like I can understand it not using it, but having yeah, to remove it from the server for it to work just doesn't make any sense. It's the official documentation. They've yeah thought of yeah. something. To, yeah. Oh well. So get back to Dan's post. Uh, in this post, I'm using an IPv6 address block or addresses from the IPv6 address prefix reserved for documentation, uh, which is uh, yeah a specific block we uh, listed here. Uh, you, you should of course use your own address because there's so many of them. And um, he lists the IPv6 block that uh, he has been assigned to, and he adds this to rc.conf. So in case you want to follow along, here are the definite um, lines for rc.conf, and you can just copy and paste them and, of course, change the IPv6 addresses. And uh, so you change basically the IPv6 active all interfaces and the IPv6 default router, as well as the... um, uh, well, if config em1, which is his um, nick in this case, uh, IPv6 address, and 
uh, that's the RCR conf setting. So the IPv6 address I have assigned to this host is completely random with a given block. I found a random IPv6 address generator and used it to select a specific one that he likes as the address for a service with his address block. And I don't have the reference, but I did read that randomly selecting addresses within your block is a better approach, he writes. In order to invoke these changes without rebooting, I issued these commands. So that's the if config commands with sudo prefixed, of course, and that will set them right away on your command line and rc.conf will uh, pull them in when the server reboots. And if you do the route at first, you will get a certain error, which gives you like writing to routing socket failed, network is unreachable and things like that. Right. And so uh, your default router, even in v6, has to be in the same subnet as you for you to be able to reach it directly by doing neighbor discovery and getting its MAC address and sending a packet over the switch. If it's not in the same subnet, you need a router to get there. And this is supposed to be the router you're going to route everything via. So, mm. yes, uh, you have to have an address in the network. Uh, so if you get this error and you're not expecting it, double check your prefix length or net mask for v4. Yeah, so that you can get there. So and then he tries uh, pinging that thing. Of course, ping 6 is the thing to use for IPv6. And uh, then he tries to ping his gateway. It doesn't work. He suspects the firewall. And uh, he's using PF, and he added another rule to keep IPv6, IPv6 ICMP traffic uh, going out. And apparently that solves the issue. Yep. So after restarting PFCTL with his uh, rule set, then the pings go out. Okay, so that's a good starting point for people who want to run IPv6 on their FreeBSD servers. And I guess it's not too difficult to make that work on other BSDs as well. So, time for the Beastie Bits this week. First one, starting with Ghost in the Shell. No, not the anime. It's uh, a little description how to get started with uh, the shell, the Unix shell in particular. Mm -hmm. And it shows you a a couple of commands, like how do you recall the last argument of a previous command. That can come in handy uh, if you type a lot of things. uh, And um, here's also... Uh, how to swap the first occurrence of a word, for example, which uh, if you uh, mistype something, then you uh, just ah, want to switch the words around, and that's the way you do it uh, over there. And there and back again is also good to know if you're navigating many different directories and jump around in your file system tree a lot, and that's a good thing to know. Or just things like repeat commands from history, like, oh, I already typed this very long and complicated command. Why should I retype it again? It's already in the history. I just need to pull it back out of. And other things, so definitely a good blog post to check out. Maybe you find a gammon nugget in there that you didn't know before. Okay, the next one is enabling compression on ZFS, a practical example. That's also from Dan Langill, a, a small... Uh, example that he's using um, demonstrating ZFS compression feature. So he lists his current pool uh, size and how much is allocated. And he has a file called bacula.dump and then he copies that to his uh, to a file called bacula.dump.compressed and after that checks the space and oh look at that. It's not taking up that much space. It's just a, it's a 60 three gigabyte file copied and using only eight gigabytes or so that's a lot of space saving yes uh, so uh, and actually because it used zpool list that's in that space consumed is including the raid z redundancy overhead and so on 
uh, you probably actually want to use ZFS list when you're comparing these. Um, also, Dan, if you really want to see, if you make a new data set and put and had copied the dump into that data set, you could do ZFS get and you could see the compression ratio and the size, the, the used and the logically used fields and actually see the differences and see exactly how much compression you got. Yeah, then you can definitely brag with that. And yeah. yeah. Uh, but yes, that's very nice compression. You know, giant MySQL or uh, Postgres dumps uh, compress very, very well. Uh, and once I get Z standard in, uh, I bet you'll be able to compress that one maybe even 2x as much. Oh, wow. Just uh, a couple of more, a couple of less disks that you have to buy each year using that. Exactly. Uh, especially for things like that, but also uh, audit logs. I think this happened for uh, Dan or one of his workmates at work was that turning on compression for the audit logs on their server, which compressed mm -hmm. like four to one or more, all of a sudden a terabyte of data is only taking up 250 gigs. <laughs> yeah, and then people are less enticed to delete stuff anymore because it all fits on the disk. And yeah, yep. uh, but yes, especially with LZ4 being so low overhead, you just turn it on in the root of the pool, and uh, it's awesome. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, so next up is um, uh, remember a couple of weeks ago we had Goran Mekic uh, on the show in an interview, and there's a little video from him uh, speaking about modern and secure DevOps on FreeBSD. So um, if you like the website design, I certainly like that. Um, there's a video down there you can watch. It's a recording of his talk, and the slides and PDFs are also available. And that's a good uh, introduction how to use um, well DevOps practices on FreeBSD. And uh, also, it covers a little bit about um, what he's working on with CBSD-Reggae. Uh, which is a branch of uh, CBSD. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how. We'll watch this and uh, report something new when there's something uh, interesting about that. And yeah, it's, it's good to see that uh, he's uh, reaching out and uh, making uh, FreeBSD advocacy in different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, we also have uh, LibreSSL 2.70 being released, and the release notes yep, are here in the show notes. Corresponds with uh, OpenBSD 6.3 uh, and includes a bunch of stuff, including a major thing, support for many of the OpenSSL 102 and 1.1 APIs, uh, supporting both of those concurrently. Uh, based on observations of real-world usage and applications, uh, these are implemented in parallel uh, with the existing OpenSSL 101 APIs. Uh, visibility changes have not been made to existing structs, so code written on the old ones or the new ones will both work together. Mm -hmm. But uh, in uh -huh. addition to that, extensive correctness, uh, corrections, improvements, and additions to the API documentation, including the new public API from OpenSSL that had uh, no pre-existing documentation, and uh, lots of other stuff. If you're interested in LibreSSL, uh, you can check out the change log there. Yep, uh, check that out and upgrade if you are uh, using that one. And last but not least, in no, no, second to last, uh, it's ZREPL version 0 0.03 is out. So ZREPL, if you don't know what it is, it's a ZFS replication solution that uh, takes a punch of a, uh, or yeah, takes cover some of the things that are less uh, nice to do. So it can uh, give you uh, 
very nice regular replication from one ZFS pool to the next. And this one, uh, this new version allows automatic bookmarking of snapshots that uh, ZFS yes. supports, as well as um, uh, change in transport protocols, uh, which requires so a daemon to you, restart on both yeah, sides. Yeah, if you, if you change the transport protocol, you have to restart both sides, which makes sense. Yep. And, and a bunch of other changes. But um, yes, um, one of the things that excites me most about ZREPL is is the only replication tool I know of that even understands that there's such thing as bookmarks. Uh, and uh, so for those who don't know, what a ZFS bookmark does is you take a snapshot, which is a point in time in the pool and the old version of all the data so that you can go back to that time. Uh, and you, you can also use it for incremental replication. Well, for if you only need incremental replication... A bookmark is just the point in time without the old version of the data. So it can be the starting point for replicating from that to a newer version. So you can do incremental replication from the bookmark to a new snapshot um, without having to keep the data older than the bookmark around. Right? When, you, when you take a snapshot, it means any data that existed the second you took the snapshot is kept around until you get rid of the snapshot. But if you make it a bookmark and then delete the snapshot, all the old data can be freed, giving you space back, but that bookmark can still be used as the starting point for incremental replication to a newer snapshot. Uh, so it allows you to continue incremental replication without having to keep the old data around, which is super helpful, especially if you have a high rate of churn and a low rate of free space. Mm-hmm. So. And the author of ZREPL will also give a talk at BSDCAN. One more reason to go there. Yep. Yeah, especially if you have use cases, he'd love to hear about them and implement them for you. Oh, yeah, definitely. So I volunteered him for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> okay, uh, but speaking of ZFS, uh, we need yes. to re-mention the ZFS user conference. Sue? Yes, uh, so the ZFS user conference is April 19th and 20th at the offices of Datto, which is a ZFS backup company um, in Norwalk, Connecticut, which is near New York, um, sponsored by Circonus and Micron. Uh, there'll be a number of talks there, um, including uh, keynotes from Matt Ahrens, and, uh, who's working on the, who is the co-creator of ZFS, uh, Tom Caputi, who did the uh, ZFS native encryption work, um, and a uh, recent addition, uh, Jervin Real, who's the technical services manager at Percona, which is a database company, and how they're using ZFS. Yeah, so this is a user conference, uh, not a developer conference, although a couple of developers will be there. Uh, this is for users who use ZFS on a daily basis or are planning to use it and want to know what's the latest and greatest. Yes, uh, so... It's a great opportunity for other users to just talk with each other and see, but also for users to help uh, developers understand their use case and so on. In particular, Tom Caputi's keynote is actually helping developers help you. Uh, and so we're hoping that will be nice. Uh, but yes, it's for users of ZFS to share tips and tricks and information uh, and for developers to give you guys an idea of what's going on. Uh, but also I think Micron's going to talk a bit about some new hardware coming out uh, and how that might be useful to you uh, and some interesting caveats with that and so on. Um, so, yeah. 
uh, I'm looking forward to that, and uh, I'm hoping to see people there. Um, you can still register now, so hurry up and do that. Uh, and they have links uh, to some of the hotels nearby, so you can get a place to stay, and the address of the office, and so on. And uh, contact if you have any questions. Mm-hmm. So I look forward to seeing everyone there. This week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Uh, go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow and check it out. Yeah, definitely uh, check out the new redesigned Tarsnap website. Got it's a, only a minor addition. The, the, well, well, it's, the bigger it's changes for uh, <laughs> April Fool's Day have been rolled back already. Um, well, okay. <laughs> but, you know, Tarsnap is a secure, efficient online backup service. And it encrypts all your data with a key that only you have on your machine. Uh, before sending it off to the cloud, you get the full source code for the client uh, so you can compile it yourself and don't trust Tarsnap or anybody else. Do it all yourself. And it has uh, great deduplication and compression features so you don't end up paying for more bandwidth than you actually need. Uh, and it's all pay-as-you-go. And it runs on any Unix-like operating system, including BSD, Linux, Mac OS, Sigwin, or you can run it under the Linux subsystem for Windows even. Yeah, and if you followed the show until now, you already saw how Colin's predictions about security were well, still true, basically. So, and he wrote Tarsnap, which they also recommend. So, yes. why not so, use it? Colin's advice was considered the best advice that was available in 2009 and has been revalidated in 2015 and 2018. You know, yeah, independently. So, <laughs> this is just uh, the, the best. Um, way to know that someone wrote this system that uh, knows about security, keeping your data secure, where it's most important, the backups. Okay, uh, going right into our feedback and questions section this week, uh, starting with Benjamin uh, about the BSD personal mail server. So that starts with, hi, Alan and Benedict. I've been watching BSD now somewhat sporadically, but have now got into more regular viewing and listening, and I'm catching up on back episodes. Okay, if you read this, then <laughs> you, you almost got us. Uh, okay, you caught up. Uh, I've been an active user of ZFS on Linux for a couple of years. Started out with just a partition on a laptop to try it out after hearing Alan talk about it in various venues, and ended up with ZFS on most of my systems after experiencing real-life bit rot of some files that lived on EXT4 partitions. Oh, that's bad. Something my carefully maintained incremental backups did nothing to protect me from. Oh, that's bad. Uh, so uh, that's the the problem with backups is you need more than one backup. You need to be able to go back uh, far enough to before it was corrupt. And importantly, if you have a file system that doesn't tell you that hey, this data's been corrupted, it turns out it could have been corrupted for two years, and you don't have backups going back that far. Yeah, or it's it's or the. When you did the backup, it was correct, but the spinning rust or the the waiting on the disk kind of flipped some bits, and yeah, you didn't know until you but if, reread if the that copy data. The backup was fine, then you can get it back. But if mm. the copy in the last ten backups is all wrong, then yeah. Oh. 
Okay. Uh, so he has been becoming more and more interested in technologies developed over in the BSD space. So he's interested in getting more experience with BSDs and had thought about trying setting up a toy mail server on some sort of BSD. Uh, part of this was prompted by his interest, uh, which was recently posted in the OpenBSD mail service. He saw it pop up on one of the feeds. Okay, that's the link here. Yeah, uh, as well we as covered that on a recent episode as well. I think we did, yeah. So that's a good reference to start from, uh, as well as its recent but slightly older guide on getting up a mail server on FreeBSD. That's a second link here. Do either of us have thoughts on these sorts of setups? Um, so my mail server is Postfix plus Dovecot plus DKIM and all that stuff. Um, I have – so my personal mail server is Postfix using like alias files. Like I, I maintain the configuration in text files, like of all the users. Um, whereas for work, it's a it's backed by an SQL database because we needed to be able to programmatically add users and so on. Mm. Uh, but yeah, um, I didn't look at those two tutorials specifically right now. Uh, but yes, there's a pretty straightforward to set up a mail server on BSD, and uh, I like Postfix. Yeah. Or sometimes you only need to forward email, like from a system that uh, is trying to tell you something, then you only need an send-only server, not a full-blown um, mail transport agent or mail transport server. Then you can look at uh, SSMTP, which is send-only. It never re receives email or spam yeah. that way. Or uh, um, DMA is the uh, Dragonfly Dragonflies. mail agent. It's the one yep. It's just deals with mail for the local users and forwards it off to real mail servers. Yeah, we but also I think heard he wants to do a real mail server. So, uh, yeah, one Open of those SMTB. tutorials that covers Postfix, or I think the the OpenBSD one there does OpenSMTBD. Uh, yeah, I'd recommend doing a VM and doing both and uh, learning a little bit about everything. Yeah, and then compare and then, what you like. Then best. keep some notes as you do it, and then throw them all away and set up the real one. Yeah, and write a blog post which we'll cover in BSD now, and see this is the cycle. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, good, good start. Um, keep doing that and yeah, good luck with your, uh, BSD, uh, endeavors. Uh, next up is Warren, uh, with ZFS volume size limit, uh, referencing show 233. Oh, wow. Um, so that starts the Bondwick article you read at the top of show 233 says the max size of a ZFS volume is two to the power of 200, uh, 128 blocks. But Wikipedia says it's 2 to the power of 128 bytes. Okay, so uh, data table to the upper right there yeah, on Wikipedia. Oh, I remember that episode where we had a lot of stats about ZFS. Uh, in a fight between Bonwick and this particular Wikipedia page, I assume Bonwick wins. Um, but could you confirm that? Well, I'm sure nobody has ever made a pool this big uh, to know. Um, I, I would suggest trusting the source code more than either of those um so the difference between blocks and bytes here is the one is the the unit for the allocation and the other one is the the blocks on disk or right days of course of such when bonwick wrote his thing blocks were always 512 bytes never any other size mm -hmm. um whereas nowadays they could be much bigger you know we have 4k blocks uh, which might change things significantly, you know. Um, I'd have to look, but either way, you're not going to get to that size, so I don't think it matters. But uh, I don't know. It's something we'll have to 
maybe ask Matt Aarons to clarify. Yeah. It's not like you don't see him soon in a user conference uh, of some sort. Uh, but it continues, uh, if Wikipedia is wrong, would you also please edit the Wikipedia page? I could edit it, but I heard it on a podcast. doesn't strike me as a subject matter expertise. Well, it's, if it's this blog podcast, then, well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. yeah. So, it's, it's your best... co-author of instead of his book does it, he writes. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, certainly. In the end, you usually want a citation anyway. And the citation... Uh, the best citation is probably the um, the source code, uh, although Bonwick's Bonwick's article could article. also be used. But um, yeah. the source code is probably more accurate than uh, the text Any... Bonwick wrote, especially since it's just been reformatted a couple of times on the uh, Oracle site. So who knows? Okay, uh, it continues. Uh, from your reference to the A shift value in this segment, I assume that what is meant here is not the ZFS record size, correct? Those larger things, yeah, um, which default to 128 kilobytes are sometimes called ZFS blocks, but that's not what we're talking about here, right? Correct. Uh, those are records, not blocks. So blocks are the A shift. Um, or actually, hold on. All Isn't there the an sizes internal in ZFS might assume 512 bytes as the multiple, and then the A shift controls what the actual sector size is and isn't necessarily related to the block size. Um, so yeah. But oh, yes, yeah the, the record size is definitely not the block size that was being referred to in the Monwick article. Okay. And here's, uh, it closes with a link to a stack exchange exchange um, about the ZFS limits and why they are the way they are. And that's a quite a long answer. Uh, right. Well, do you want to read the question above that? Uh, yeah. The question actually answered here uh, on the Stack Exchange here is, um, what is the sense behind ZFS limits? And that's also quoting the Wikipedia article, you know, how many uh, trillion Yobi bytes it has and the uh, maximum file size and number per maximum number of files per directory and things like that. But again, we'll never touch any of those limits anytime soon so it's good to know that the limits are there and they are so big that we can't reach them in a reasonable amount of years Uh, but um, other than that it's just why uh, argue about oh is it is it trillion or a billion or yeah Uh, these large numbers are so big it's uh, it's just uh, at this point in particular Two to the power of 128 is effectively infinite already. Like with 10 to the power of 12 atoms, that means we'd have 47 picograms, which is trillionths of a gram, uh, Mm -hmm. I think, um, of silicon to store each byte. Um, And so at that level, we're just never going to get there. And so whether it's uh, 2 to 128 bytes or 2 to 128 512-byte sectors – doesn't actually matter. Yeah, it's it's just unimaginably large. So you know, yeah. if if it turns out ZFS only holds two to the power of one hundred and twenty-one, <laughs> oh no, what are we going to do? No, 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 they were all wrong those all those years. But definitely, if there's wrong information on Wikipedia, there's uh, that's the the actual goal to correct that, and we can do that. Um, so we just need to provide the proper reference. So yeah, let us, thanks for letting us know. Um, I don't look too much at Wikipedia for ZFS things, uh, 
but yeah, maybe someone else. I will has admit been. for random articles I've looked there to see the limit of like how many files in a directory. So it would be useful. Yeah, for, for quick lookup, uh, that's certainly a source. But yeah, don't trust uh, everything you read on the internet. Um, okay. <laughs> Thanks for sending that in. And next up is Lars about Afri Nick. And that goes the BSDs get rep or get, yeah. So start again. The BSDs get presented a lot at conferences in Asia, Europe, and North America. What kind of plans are there to branch out? Like uh, you can take an active role in the Afronic public policy meetings by joining other presenters and delivering tools, knowledge, and know-how or policy ideas related to internet, number, resource management, or IP networking operations to participants. Your contribution can be in the form of a presentation in a session, a tutorial, or a live demonstration. So there are two links. I know that uh, my fellow... Um, FreeBSD Foundation board member Philip Pups is doing a lot of stuff uh, in Asia and uh, the sur- not, not, not just Asia but also in Africa and surrounding uh, countries there, uh, Middle East, and he's going to many of those um, MIC meetings, network uh, interest groups, and um, he's been doing a lot of advocacy in areas where we hadn't had any kind of representation there, and um, maybe we can uh, get you in touch i know there's a couple of uh, contacts he has in the area already but right, um, like i know he's, he's presented at least a tutorial or something like that about bsd at uh, sdnog which is the sudanese network operators group mm-hmm. uh and afrinic and a couple other similar events um, south africa yeah if if you are a FreeBSD person and are interested in giving a presentation uh, at something like Afrinic, you should definitely get in touch with the foundation and, and Philip and coordinate that because uh, yeah. um, the more of these conferences we can send somebody to, the better. Yeah, and there's definitely need um, to know about the, the BSDs in those areas and especially since this is uh, the, the operating system is free, whatever that means, is um, good for the people um, in Africa because it's it's just readily available and you can just use it. I know that he's been, uh, Philip has been uh, dragging around a couple of um, FreeBSD USB sticks to a couple of conferences to hand out to people. And um, maybe, oh, since you posted the event calendar, uh, we can find a common conference where um, you can meet or make some kind of um, collaboration in those areas to get a local, like a user group going or something else. Mm-hmm. But yeah, definitely. Uh, thanks for the, uh, the two links you provided, and maybe some people from uh, Africa watching our show can get in touch and yeah, talk about uh, what they're doing with the BSDs. Okay, uh, last but not least is Brad about OpenZFS versus Oracle ZFS. And that one goes, hey, JT, Benedict, and Alan, quick question for you. In episode 232, you read, Michael Dexter's ZFS versus OpenZFS. So my question is fairly quick. Uh, when you search online for details on ZFS, usually, at least in my experience, the first five or six search results are linked back to Oracle. Have the two projects diverged far enough that we shouldn't trust Oracle Docs? I would say yes. Um, there's quite a bit that's changed. Um, and OpenZFS has some features that change some of the answers. Like the right answer for from Oracle when configuring MySQL um, was to let MySQL's buffer cache do most of the work, mm. which, depending on your workload, might still be the right answer. But sometimes uh, on OpenZFS, taking advantage of the compressed arc feature uh, means that you could cache 
two, three, four, five times as much data using the ARC than would fit in the MySQL buffer cache. In which case, a higher cache hit ratio is likely to give you better performance. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the buffer cache does understand what's happening inside MySQL better. So there are certain cases where it makes more sense to keep doing it that way, but there are times when it doesn't make sense. Well, Oracle ZFS doesn't have that feature, and so they're not going to present that extra bit of advice and so on. Yeah, you can also look up uh, the documentation section on open-zfs.org, where they have a bunch of links at the end of the um, system administration section or also the development section, of course, where they provide specific documentation about open ZFS and not just the Oracle parts. I know they have better uh, search engine optimization on the Oracle side, but if you provide open ZFS in your search results, I guess you get more uh, hits that's, uh, for the open version. Yes, and we you know continue our campaign to make sure the right information is out there and easy to find. Yep, or if you have a specific question, then, of course, send it to our uh, show and we'll cover it in a future episode which many people already did and people should send us more feedback and questions because we are yes. running out so yes uh you know with recording a double episode last week and again we will be doing it this week uh which is actually it's only the fourth today even though this episode comes out on the 11th um you know we really need uh, all the feedback emails you can give us so email us feedback at bsdnow.tv yeah, and uh, thanks for watching and see you next week.